Two weeks ago, I don't believe it was streamed here, but two weeks ago I used an illustration uh, of a, a butt dial. Are you familiar with this term? <laughs> the accidental dialing of a number where, you know, it was in your purse, it was in your back pocket, it clicks through, and, or if you receive one of those, that's also kind of fun because you say hello, there's nobody, you know, you hear noise on the other end, but there's nobody really there, and you realize that this was an accidental dialing of the, of the number. And of course, what is the temptation in that moment? I wonder what they're saying on the other, are, are they talking about me by chance? What's going on there? And to, and to listen. Uh, not that I ever have, but I feel that temptation when some of you call me. And uh, I've heard some very interesting things from the HB campus, let me tell you. <laughs> Imagine if you could be a mouse in the corner at uh, Trinity House and listen to what God the Father says to God the Son, or what God the Son says to God the Spirit, or the Son to the Father, where you actually could hear the way they communicate with each other. What do they talk about? What is the tone? Uh, wouldn't that be a fascinating thing to listen in on the inner Trinitarian communication in the Godhead? Of all the uh, sort of calls and communications that we could listen to, that would be the most privileged, to hear what God has to say to God. And we get little glimpses in the Gospels of this, maybe a sentence here uh, or two where you know, Jesus says something, prays a brief prayer to God the Father. Occasionally, we have at least two instances where God the Father speaks uh, you know, at the transfiguration at his baptism. And not directly to Jesus so much as declaring, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But then you get to John 17. John 17 is an absolutely unique chapter in all of divine revelation. It is nothing less than a record of what God the Son prayed to God the Father. This communication within the Godhead, it is a prayer, okay, it is a prayer. I understand it's the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. It is the true prayer of Jesus. It is the true Lord's prayer. And yes, I know when I say the Lord's prayer in our mind, we think about this exemplary prayer that Jesus gave to the disciples when they wanted to know how to pray and he says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. And we call that, you know, the Lord's Prayer. But if we could go back and redo the naming of things, I think that we would not name that the Lord's Prayer because it really isn't the Lord's Prayer. It is an exemplary prayer for the disciples. So maybe we would call that prayer the disciples' prayer or the Christians' prayer. You might turn me down just a little bit. I hope to yell later in the message, and I'm already hot. So uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, we would assign to John 17, because this is actually Jesus praying, and it's recorded for us what he prayed, how he prayed, and as such, it is truly hallowed and sacred 
and holds a place in divine revelation that is absolutely unique. It is a long-form prayer from God the Son to God the Father. And uh, here we have the Lord's true heart. He opens his heart in his prayer to his heavenly Father. He does so hours before his arrest and crucifixion, which he knows well is about to happen. In fact, this is such a comforting chapter that the great reformer John Knox, as he lay in his deathbed the last days of his life, every day they would read to him John 17. If you, if, if you could pick a chapter that would be read to you as you die, which chapter of the Bible would you choose? Now, I might choose uh, Romans 8, uh, but John 17 would run a close second. And it is in that way wonderfully heartfelt, it is personal, it is intercessory, and it is very insightful into the inner life within the Trinity and is very unique in Scripture because of it. In fact, uh, Philip Melanchthon, best buddy of Martin Luther, said about this, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. John 17, often known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. A simple outline would be this, that in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. That's the section we're looking at today. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for the church. And by the way, he prays for us in that section, which is super exciting. And we'll get into that in uh, the weeks ahead. Now, let's get into the text, and here's how John introduces Jesus' prayer. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, we'll stop right there, because there's a few interesting things already in, in that text. Jesus lifted up his eyes. Some of you maybe are offended already. By this, because we see Jesus breaking the Christian's golden rule, and that is that when we pray, we don't keep our eyes open. We close, everybody knows that. We close our eyes when we pray. Apparently, John was the only disciple peeking <laughs> during the prayer. And that, of course, is a fun thing with, with kids in particular when you have, you know, one sort of uh, precocious child who reports to mom and dad that one of the other children was, was, had their eyes open during prayer. And every parent, you know, you got this one ready in the chamber because it's like when they say that, you say, how do you know, right? And it's like busted, totally busted. So he, his eyes are open. And further it says here that he doesn't bow in prayer. Jesus, what is wrong with you? Every Christian knows when we pray, we close our eyes, we bow our head. This is what allows God to hear us, is when we have that posture. And yet, here it says that he looks up. Now, I drive a carpool each week, and we've got uh, kids from uh, our neighbors that are in with my kids, and so we sometimes get into lively theological conversations in the van on the way to school. And recently, the question came up in the van, uh, regarding heaven, 
And the question was, is heaven up? Is God up? Well, as far as whether your eyes can be open or not in prayer, the reason we close our eyes typically is that it helps us not be distracted. Okay? But we see in this that we don't have to do that, especially if you are praying while you're driving. I would recommend you keep your eyes open. Uh, and it's not where our eyes are at, but it's where our heart is, is at that matters in, in, in our prayers. And then similarly, in looking up, uh, we are, we're not looking up because God is up. Because God is everywhere. Okay? You can look anywhere, and, and there God is. Uh, God, if he is anywhere, is in another dimension. He is in the spiritual dimension. He is not, you know, by Mars or something, uh, uh, Pluto. No. But the upward look for us gives us a sense of the exalted place that God has over us. And I think there is a certain, it's a, it's a, it's a worshipful posture to, to look up and in that sense to see God as gloriously elevated over us and beyond us. So if you want to look up for that sense or look down in humility, we see all kinds of postures and eyes closed, eyes open, all of it's good if our, if our heart is right in the prayer. Okay, so that was just the first couple clauses here. You're like, this, this series is going to go long at this rate. We'll go a little bit faster here. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. May God bless his word to us today. So much in these verses, so much theology, so much trinity. And uh, so our approach here is going to be this. We're going to start off by what we learn about prayer. Secondly, what we learn about the glory of Christ. And then finally, what we learn about eternal life and how we can have it. Okay? So that's how we're taking this apart. We begin now with what we learn about prayer. And the first thing that we just have to note here is that of all the things that Jesus could have been doing in the hours before he is going to die, the thing that he chooses to do is he prays. If you knew that you would be dead in 12 hours, what would you do? How would you spend your time? And we see Jesus here giving intentional time to prayer, not just in the upper room, but also, also in the Garden of Gethsemane. Indeed, we could even go to the cross. We have seven statements recorded for us that Jesus said on the cross. Three of them, for sure, are directed to God the Father. You could argue a fourth one. He's praying. He's praying in the upper room. He's praying in the garden. He's praying on the cross. And by the way, he continues to pray as he intercedes for us at the right hand of God the Father. But we note in this that Jesus prayed before the great trial of his life. He prayed in the great trial of his life. He prayed right up to the end of the great trial in his life. And you don't need a PhD to see the point that I'm making here, and that is 
how easy it is for us to approach the challenges in our life and to not follow the model of Jesus himself, despite the fact he is the Son of God. You would think of the Son of God, he's got all power, he's got all authority, he probably, Jesus don't need to pray, he's the Son of God. And yet the Son of God prays before, during, and at the end of his trial and his suffering. And if the Son of God saw the need to pray in that kind of a season of suffering, how much more do people like you and me, in our weakness, in our humanity, in our frailty, need to realize that prayer is one of the primary means by which God sustains his people in the ups and downs of life? Be inspired by the example of Jesus praying. Some of you had a tough week this week. Hard things happen. How did, look back on your week. Where did you go? What did you do? How did you handle it? And Christian, if you're a Christian here today, where was prayer located in the process of you dealing with the challenges of this week? Be inspired by the example of, uh, of Jesus. Further, I want to note here that none of the disciples, while he's praying, were like, hello, Jesus, we're right here. I mean, they're sitting at the table, right? They're sitting around the table, and all of a sudden, Jesus just starts praying, and there's the disciples. What do we do now? He seems to be engaged in prayer. Do we just wait this out? Is he ever going to stop? I note this because it would seem that for his disciples that this kind of prayer was fairly normal. This isn't the first time they saw him. We don't have everything recorded that he did, every prayer that he prayed for sure. But this was kind of normal for Jesus to just start praying. And there they were, maybe engaging the prayer, amening in their hearts with him. And I, I note this because Jesus clearly lived a life of prayer. And to hang out with Jesus was to regularly be standing there, sitting there, as he prayed to his heavenly Father. And again, I'm putting this out as an, as an example for us. What would it look like in your life, Christian, if you were to take a step or two maybe in the direction of the example of the engaging prayer life of Jesus? For example, if you're married and your spouse has a hard day, say, honey, honey, before you leave, I'd like to pray with you. Would your wife fall over if you did that? What? Or your child, if you have a child, if you're a parent, has some kind of a challenge, and it might be a boo-boo, it might be, uh, you know, their nursing final exam. No matter what it is, as a parent to say, hey, let's pray about this together. Or if you have a friend, to, to, to just start praying with them. What I'm getting at here is that I think that if we were to spend a day or a week as a disciple of Jesus, walking, talking, seeing, observing him, there would be this sort of entering into prayer and not entering, you know, not praying and praying. It just would flow as a normal part of life. And I think that we all would do better, I include myself in this, if we were to kind of move that direction and to be a little freer with, a, hey, let's just pray about this together. 
This isn't weird. We don't need to declare a prayer meeting. Let's just pray. Maybe after this service, as you're talking with somebody, and they go, yeah, I got this going, or whatever, say, don't just go, yeah, hey, pray about it. Pray right there. Just pray for them and enter into that. And that kind of a sort of culture of your life, culture of our church, of actively, ongoingly praying for one another, certainly is much more what it was like to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, I want to note a little bit, too, about the content of Jesus' prayer. This section here, the first section, he prays for himself like we all do. In fact, I'll be honest with you, most of my prayers are probably prayers for myself. Are you disappointed to hear that? I'm going to guess that your prayers are like that as well. And I I got thinking about the content of this prayer of Jesus praying for himself and how different it is in the kind of prayers that when we pray for ourselves, that we pray for ourselves. His prayer is not for his material blessing. His prayer is not for his safety or his health. I mean, imagine Jesus praying the way we pray for ourselves in this moment. God, I hope it doesn't hurt too much. Or God, Keep me safe. Or God, I hope I'm healthy. And why wouldn't he pray those? Because he knows that he is not going to be safe. He is not going to be healthy. He's going to die. And he is not going, and it's going to hurt very, very much. And all of that was God's will for him. Rather, his prayer aligns with what he knows is the will of God for him to do. And he prays according to those deeper purposes of God in his life. Themes like God's glory, God's will, God's mission, and how he wants to align what he does with what he knows God wants him to do in his life. This is, if I go back to the the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. My daughter Madeline, when she was memorizing that verse, would, would, she would fly through it and she would you know, say, she'd get to that part and, and instead of, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, she would say, my kingdom come, my will be done. <laughs> and let's be honest, that's kind of what's in our hearts when we pray. We want God to align with what we want to happen here. And we see Jesus not doing that. Rather, he is aligning himself with what he knows God's purpose is, his glory, God's mission, the things that we would describe in as the gospel. And so I just hold that out as as an encouragement for us to move towards the model of the actual true Lord's Prayer. Pray prayers that, that acknowledge God's will and purpose. Ask God to give you strength and clarity of mind and a renewed mind to want what God wants in your life on that day. That's how Jesus prayed. I hold it out as a model to you. You know, did you know that we can grow in our prayer life? And we really should grow in our prayer life. And whenever you talk about prayer, everybody has a guilt trip. And I'm not putting a guilt trip out here. I want to encourage you, encourage all of us to be on a path of growth in this key aspect of the Christian life, in prayer. So I grew up in a Christian home, and I was taught to pray, and I did it almost every night growing up. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. 
If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. A very comforting prayer for a child to have to pray. If I should die before I wake. I heard a comedian make a, a, big, a big joke about how that's really a horrible prayer, but that's what I prayed. Um, bless Mommy, Daddy, Stevie, Barbie, Scotty, Terry, amen. <laughs> night after night after night. And you know what? You're like, hey, it's a kid just learning to pray. We don't look down on that. But if, if you come to my house to, and to, for prayer with me and I say, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. At this stage of my life, you would be like, what is wrong with you? And you call yourself a pastor. The point is, is that we can grow, and we, and we should grow, and that the, the focus of our prayers and the content of our prayers, as we mature, still include us, but it's not my kingdom come, my will be done type praying. It's thy kingdom come, thy will be done kind of praying, to grow and to mature. So how, how can we grow in this and, and mature in our, in our prayers? I think the best way is to pray with people who pray maturely. There are some people in our church, even, at, I, of course, I'm the senior pastor of the church, so my prayers are supposed to be the deepest, most mature, godly. There are people in our church that I pray with them, and I'm like, they pray way more maturely than I do. But it's inspiring to me, okay? It's inspiring to me. I remember uh, back in when I was an associate pastor, I was a um, Charles Ware. Some of you, we, Charles Ware's preached at our church and very powerful African-American pastor and preacher, and he was an elder in the church, and we'd be in a circle praying, and, you know, nobody wanted to pray after Charles. Because he would pray, and it was like heaven came into the room. It was such a powerful prayer. And no matter what you prayed after him, it felt like you were saying, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> so, strive to grow in your prayer life. Pray over everything in your life, okay? Pray over all of it. But pray it less in the my kingdom come, my will be done, more in the thy kingdom come, which is what we find Jesus doing here. Pray your heart. It's not a performance. Next time we pray together, feel no pressure. Okay, roll out the now I lay me down to sleep. I'm here to encourage you, okay? It's fine. But try to grow. Look at Jesus' prayer life. Learn from John 17. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are very enriching regarding, you know, most of them are essentially prayers, Read the Psalms. Read great prayers, like in, if you have the little book, Valley of Vision, also very inspiring. And let's let John 17 be a, these weeks that we're studying it, just be a time of maybe maturing and growing in your understanding of prayer and your experience of it as well. Okay, so that's what we learn about prayer. Let's talk about what we learn about the glory of Christ. Um, and I, I wish I would have wore a coat because it's... Uh, about 55 degrees in here right now. Has nobody else ever said anything about that? You hire somebody, we got a pastor from Michigan, look what happens. I thought you were lower peninsula, but based on the setting here, I would say you were from the upper peninsula of Michigan. I'm sure there's a wonderful deacon who will go and take care of that problem right now for us. I might need a coffee. Uh, 
All right. You're welcome, everyone, at HV Campus. You've been, okay, you're welcome. All right. All right. So, with that said, how do we transition to the glory of Christ here? Let's try. Look again at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. What a profound statement this is. Let's take it apart. Father, the hour has come. The hour. What's he talking about there? If you read the Gospels, you would see that repeatedly he says, my hour has not come. Here is John 2, verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Here's John 7. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And that's one of these little phrases, if you're reading devotionally, it's easy to just sort of skip over it and not realize what this is actually saying. Galatians tells us that Jesus came into the world in the fullness of time. What does that tell us? It tells us that it was not random when Jesus came. It was not chaos that was in charge of Jesus' schedule. It also tells us that the Pharisees were not in charge of his schedule, that Judas was not in charge of his schedule, that the Sadducees or Pilate or the Romans or anybody else was in charge or directing the timing of his death. This was entirely the providence and the sovereignty of God that had dictated all of these circumstances to this one defining hour, this moment when by God's sovereign decree before the world began, Jesus, the Son of God, would die on the cross. The hour had not come, but as he sits at this table and offers this prayer, he says, now's the time. This hour has come. The completeness of time, the providence, the circumstances, all of it directed by God. We see in this, Jesus is not a victim. He wasn't caught up in a political upheaval of some kind. He is sovereignly controlling every second of it, including his crucifixion. His hour had come. Verse 4 says this, I glorified you on earth. We're talking about the glory of Christ. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished what the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glor this is such a profound statement. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's talk about glory. Such a massive theme in the Bible. The glory of Christ. When the Bible talks about glory, it does so in two different ways. And you have to keep these straight as you read glory. The first is glory as a statement or an indication an assessment of worth or value, okay? Worth or value. The glory of something is a measure, okay? It's an assessment of something's inherent value. So, for example, if you go to the grocery store, it is an experience of glory because as you walk down the aisles, you know, you got the soup can for three bucks and you got the eggs for 150 bucks and you've got, <laughs> you've got uh, the bread for this much and the coffee for that much and all of them have a little glory indicator. We call it the price tag that tells us 
what is the assessed worth or value of that particular item? And have you noticed that recently there, the, the, the food in America has much greater glory? Those prices are going up and up and up. But I'm not here to depress you, okay? When the Bible talks about the glory of God then, it is a word and a description It is an assessment of the value of God. And what is his value? Infinite. Infinite value. The glory of God is is infinite because he is himself infinite. So we talk about living to the glory of God is when we treasure, when we in our hearts assess him as being the most worthy, the most valuable, and I live my life in a way where I am treasuring his pleasure and his glory as more valuable than my own or anything else. To me, God is the greatest. His grandeur is the highest. And that is, that is the glory as the inherent worth of God. And that's the first way that the Bible describes glory. The second one is glory in terms of a dazzling light that expresses the inherent worth. Okay, so you have examples of where we see um, this glory light. The Old Testament calls it Shekinah, where God's inherent worth is visualized and the excellence of his character effuses in a kind of light. So Jesus at his transfiguration, there it says that he just glowed. He just he looked like the sun. Out of Jesus came a kind of light. And it's the same light that uh, John sees in Revelation and that Solomon saw when the glory of God came down upon the temple and that Moses saw at the burning bush. And you can see these moments where this light show of the inherent worth of God is on display. And so those are the two ways that, that, that the Bible talks about glory. And when we go back to the text, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. What does that mean? He lived in a way that displayed that for Jesus, the purpose and will of God the Father was his greatest treasure. It was his will, not my own. And he notes that he glorified God by fulfilling his will on earth. Now there is a little prolepsis here, a little little like acting as if the future has already happened because we know that the cross is yet to come, which is the pinnacle display of Jesus glorifying God the Father. Uh, But his request here is what's amazing. His request is, God, restore me to the glory that was mine before the world began, before creation, before there was anything other than God, when all it was was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And there in that, even maybe before heaven existed, when there only was God, that glory, Jesus prays on earth that he would be restored to that glory. And I wonder if you've ever considered what Jesus left 
when he was incarnated as a human being. He notes here that he left his glory. And by that, it doesn't mean that he, his glory was diminished when he was on earth because he was the glorious son of God at every second. But it certainly means that his experience of that glorious perfection in heaven was diminished when he came and became one of us. So for example, in heaven, Jesus was rich and he left those riches for human poverty. In heaven, Jesus was worshiped by the angels and he left that angelic praise to be condemned as a criminal. Crucify him. That's a much different word than he heard in heaven. In heaven, Jesus sat on a throne at the Father's right hand. But on earth, in his own words, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In heaven, it was perfect strength, like divine omnipotence at every single moment. And yet on earth, in his humanity, he was often hungry. He was tired. He was weak. And the greatest weakness is about to be experienced as he literally hangs on the cross and dies. So heaven was divine fullness of glory. And here on earth, it was human poverty and weakness. And this is why his earthly ministry is described as his humiliation. The humiliation of the perfect, glorious Son of God as he walks this earth in a human body and experiences normal, everyday weakness like like you and me. For us, that's like every day. We're like, oh, that's normal. But when you're the Son of God, that ain't normal. What we experience is not normal. It was infinitely beneath his true glory. And so he prays here that God the Father would restore him to his place at his right hand and restore him to the glorious experience of the fullness and perfection of deity. And indeed, this is what happens. Okay, Did God the Father answer his prayer? Yes, he did. And we know that after he dies on the cross, he's resurrected on the third day. Forty days later, he ascends to heaven. So that if right now we had a portal and could look into into heaven and look into where Jesus is, we would not see a weak Savior. We we would not see a tired Son of God. He is not thirsty. He is not hungry. He is not lacking anything. He is restored to the glory that he had before heaven and earth were created. There he is in all his glory. So you say, well, I'm a little confused here because if he already was infinitely glorious and he goes through all these experiences on earth and dies and resurrected and ascended to heaven, did all of this add to his glory? And the answer is no. It did not add to his glory. But what it did is it unveiled his glory and it expanded the praise of his glory so that now and in the future he will forever be celebrated 
by what all of this revealed regarding his divine character. There's some big words in there. Did you hang with me on that? And I've preached on this before, and I don't have time right now, but I mean, to, to realize that this is one of the things closest to my heart and my soul, like at the core of what I believe, is that the reason that Jesus did this and God the Father did this, the macro story here, is to unveil the glory of Christ, which the Father knew regarding the Son, but it had never had an opportunity to be unveiled and shown. How do we know his love until there are enemies that he loves anyway? How do we know his grace until there are sinners who deserve help but they get heaven? How, how do we know his commitment to obeying the Father until it costs him his life? And all of that was true in eternity past, but it had never been displayed. And so God purposes this whole thing, and we're part of this narrative right now. Today is a part of this grand narrative of unveiling the glory of Christ so that we might be for the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1. And all of this is for the praise of his glory. And Philippians 2 tells us that there is coming a day when this will be the song of every creature ever made. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Did God the Father answer his prayer? Oh yes, he has. And again, if we could only see, if there was a video feed, you know, if we had one of those baby monitors from heaven, and we could just look in that little screen, what would we see? We would see him high and lifted up. Such is the glory of Christ. And we learn about his desire to be restored to that glory and we rejoice that God the Father answered his prayer. And that's a little bit about what we learn about the glory of Christ from this text. And finally, what we learn about eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only, one, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I wonder if that makes any sense to you. This is eternal life, that they know you? I would bet that if we passed around a quiz today and said, please define eternal life, most of us would say, when you die, you don't die, you live. And you know what? That's true, okay? Praise God, that's true. But Jesus here says that eternal life is knowing the only true God. What does that mean? Well, it clearly means there's a kind of knowing of God that is much more than simply intellectual assent or to have your theological facts right or to be able to pass said quiz about God. And there are many people that have a kind of knowing of God that's like that. Oh, yeah, I, I believe there's a God. Yeah, yeah, Jesus probably, yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I would assent to that. And their faith is a, it's a thing here, okay? They know about God. They know very interesting and maybe even deep things about God. But there's another kind of knowing God that is the kind of knowing 
that is eternal life. And it is the rest of that phrase, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is that? That's essentially the gospel. Eternal life is knowing God the Father and knowing him through knowing Jesus Christ who was sent. Summary term for all that he did. Death, burial, resurrection, for our sins, in our place. The whole thing. The Christ, the Messiah of God, the Savior. That there is a kind of knowing of God the Father through Jesus that has as its byproduct eternal life. D.A. Carson, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as knowledge of the everlasting one. Don't confuse this, okay? Because by, by having the one, you get the other. But if you don't have the one, you don't get the other. Do you know God? Do you, friend, know God? How do I know if I know God? Well, do you know Jesus Christ, whom he sent? Have you received, believed, trusted in Christ? Because if you know Jesus in that saving way, you know the one who sent him, God the Father. And if you know God the Father, to know that God is eternal life as the byproduct of having a relationship of knowing God the Father. You have to have the one first in order to have the second. Do you today? Because what an amazing benefit it is to know God and to have this eternal life. This was brought home to me two days ago. You probably, many of you probably saw uh, the announcement regarding Pastor Tim Keller. If you don't know him, there he is. Pastor of Redeemer Church, New York, co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. Um, I met him one time. He was surprisingly tall, uh, is one of my takeaways. But uh, he uh, has had a profound impact on American Christianity, really worldwide evangelicalism, through his teaching, his writing, mostly for, for me, the role the Gospel Coalition has had in my life for the last 15 years, and really our whole leadership team, the Gospel Coalition would be very influential, and through him, to us, to you, you have been blessed by the life and the ministry of Tim Keller. He died Friday of pancreatic cancer, and... Uh, one of his quotes that I think is maybe his most famous quote is this one. The gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Love that. So he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, uh, I think, four years ago. And what's unique here is you have a, a, a very thoughtful pastor and theologian going through the process of dying. And as he did, he wrote about it, and he podcast about it. You can listen to him th thinking about death and through a very reflective and a deeply theological uh, way. And I remember, you know, sometime hearing 
somebody said that everyone listens to a dying man. And that's true. When you know somebody's dying, you pay attention. And Tim Keller talked and we listened and watched him die. And frankly, he died magnificently. He died magnificently. And one thing that he, that he said stuck out to me, and it relates to our text today. He said this, all death can now do to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. All death can do now to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. Who says something like that? I'll tell you who. Someone who has entrusted their soul to the truth of John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this Sunday, I want to ask this room today, have you or do you know God that way? Not do you have eternal life. That's the byproduct. It is knowing God through his son, Jesus Christ. Is your personal trust and belief in Jesus as the sent Savior of the world who died for you. And I'm not talking about that sort of like intellectual ascent, but at the core of your heart, where you are, your hope and your trust is truly in Jesus and what he did on the cross for you. Because if so, with death, we can approach it like Tim Keller. All death can do for me is to make my life infinitely better. And I would add infinitely better forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever time without end. And that is why I say don't miss this. You're going to die. And you want eternal life. So do I. It comes by knowing God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. And I would urge you to trust in Christ today. And so we learn a little bit about prayer, and we learn a little bit about the glory of Christ and, and eternal life. And that's just the start of this majestic prayer, the true Lord's Prayer. Lots more to come. Amen.